Welcome to Harvest. We're glad you're here this morning. And if you're anything like me, we all love a good story, right? We love, we love a story that grips us. We love a story that sucks you in. We love a story that like transports you to be there like you're one of the characters experiencing. We love stories that we can't stop thinking about. Even though we're done, the book is closed or the show is over, but we can't, we can't get it out of our minds, even though maybe it's this made up thing that we watched. And here's the moment in the sermon where either the preacher or the youth pastor would then go on to talk about Lord of the Rings, or they would talk about the Chronicles of Narnia, or early 2000s, they'd talk about the Matrix, right? And they would talk about how that movie like changed them forever. But no, I'm gonna tell you about a rom-com. Um, so, the movie is called About Time. Uh, anybody seen it before? Maybe some people? No, just me, sweet. Um, not isolating at all. Uh, but um, I can't necessarily recommend it because I don't really remember much about it other than this portion. I had to look up the synopsis, but I remember this scene. Um, just to give you a little insight to the movie, and spoiler heavy, I think it came out in like 2014, so you've had plenty of time. Uh, the main character, Tim, Tim's whole life revolves around one thing, and it's about finding the one. The, the person, it's a rom-com. Come on, you saw that coming. Um, he wants to find the one that he can spend the rest of his life with, and it's from the time he's little. He wants a girlfriend, but then he wants to find the girl he can propose to, and series of events, he ends up meeting the one that he thinks is the one, and it's Rachel McAdams, right? Like rom-com, like royalty. Um, so he meets her, and then the rest of the movie is all about him trying to set up the best, most beautiful love story in life for the two of them. The, the, and that all sounds familiar and normal. The catch is that he learns at some point from his dad that there's a recessive trait with the males in their family where you can travel through time. Small detail. But you can only travel within your own history and transport back to your subconscious transports back to that time with everything that you know now, and then you can change the trajectory of your future. So being an insecure man, obviously, as he's trying to woo this girl, he goes back and redoes stuff over and over and over again to try and make it just right, just like I would do over and over again as well. And that's kind of the whole movie, except there's this interesting portion where it kind of diverts from what seemed like was the main plot, and the movie stops revolving around him and his love and it ends up revolving around him and his dad and their relationship. And in this scene that I think of, they're, they're at this like beach house and him, Tim and his dad are playing ping pong and they're enjoying like this conversation and relationship. And um, earlier in the movie, you realize that Tim's dad has just received a terminal diagnosis. So time with his dad has become very precious to him. But it's in this scene that all of a sudden the dad becomes aware and the audience becomes aware that, oh, this isn't the present. Tim is going back in time to get more time with his dad because his dad has already died. And his dad was able to travel through time too, and he recognizes it in that moment. And he says, how long have I been gone? 
And then they go on to have the conversation from there and to rebuild and heal some broken things. And this moment in the movie hit me in such a way because earlier that summer, my dad had just had a heart episode where he was rushed to the ER. And so the mortality of life with my parents became all the more real. And so for whatever reason, this scene, like it's cemented in my brain with the, the guttural response that happened in my heart of, I want to make the most of the time that I have left with my parents. It even led, you know, that was a small piece. It wasn't like a movie made it so that Kat and I had our son. But the timeline of when we had our son moved up because of the time I wanted my, our, we wanted my parents to be able to be grandparents. A story that has the power to shape you, to change you, to influence you is truly a powerful story. And Luke, the author of Acts, has been telling a story that is filled with power. And it's not just power because he's a creative writer. While he is, it's the power of the Holy Spirit working through God's people. And in the section that we're catching up with Paul, the scene that we've had for the last couple weeks in Acts is Paul is on trial and he's defending himself against these accusations um, about his character, about what he's been doing and saying. And here, Luke is also calling us back to another story. He's calling us back to the gospel account of Luke. He's calling us back to the story of Jesus, who also was falsely accused, who went on trial, who the buck was passed on from authority figure to authority figure, even though no one could find anything wrong with Jesus, they still just moved it along until he ultimately went to his death. And the same thing is happening here with Paul. And, and Luke is wanting us to see the parallelism of these two accounts. I think that's a word. Parallelism. I, had to think, I said it and I was like, I don't know, man. It's been a while. Um, he's wanting us to see that in the story. Just as when Jesus returned to Jerusalem and then ultimately went to his death, Paul, warned by the Holy Spirit and other believers, don't return to Jerusalem because you won't be seen again. It's then again that we see this connection And here, as Paul has been defending himself, much like Jesus, his defense is not like must-watch legal drama TV like Perry Mason when I was sick at home with my mom. Yes, I just hit a very particular part of our audience, Perry Mason and Matlock. But Paul's defense isn't like anything that you'd see from any of those shows or any book that you read because it's one that's a humble testimony of what God has done in his own life and the testimony of scripture that he keeps calling back on. He's now in front of King Agrippa II, and then Luke makes note that also there is Bernice, who is King Agrippa's sister, but there's rumors of this incestuous relationship between the two of them. Don't worry, that's not where we're gonna spend the majority of the sermon this morning. There's also Festus, the governor, who has succeeded Felix in the two-year time that Paul has been in prison, waiting for a verdict to happen in this very case. And then there's the accusers that are there wanting to see Paul destroyed. 
And I think Luke includes some of the who's there to show just how dark this moment is, how helpless it should seem for Paul that anyone would hear anything he has to say and respond to what he says. And over and over again, we would think that Paul, his main goal would be to convince them that he's innocent. And while there's moments of that, more convincing or, or more important to Paul in this moment is to convince them that Jesus is the Christ, that the resurrection has happened, that the Savior has come into the world. So let's pick up in Acts 26. If you have your Bible with you, open it up. It'll be on the screen, but man, let's get, let's get our nose in the text. Starting at verse 12, this is partway through Paul already addressing King Agrippa II. Verse 12 says this, On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, King Agrippa, I was on the road. I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up, stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I'm sending you to them to open their eyes, turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Before we go on, let's pray. Lord God, this morning, we want to see the beauty of your story. We trust, Lord, as we open your words to us, your living and active word, and by the power of your spirit, you can change us. You can help us to take hold of you all the more. Help us not to miss this moment with you, God. Would we just welcome you to have your way in our midst? In your name, amen. This is the third time that we've heard Paul's conversion testimony in the book of Acts. We first saw it in Acts 9 when the event actually goes down, and then we see it again in Acts 22 in Paul's first defense to his accusers um, in this kind of courtroom scene. And now this is the third time. So maybe you're here and you've been here all three times. You're like, oh man, we're diving into this story again. Yes. But not fully, right? Like we're going to look at some of the, the unique differences in this account from the others. The, the little details that Paul includes, that Luke includes for specific reasons in this retelling of the story to King Agrippa. One of the differences this time is when Jesus first confronts Paul, he says something a little different to him. In verse 14, he says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? We've heard this before. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And your first question should be, what the heck is a goad? Because that was my question as well. I think we have a picture. So, with my hours of studying what a goad was, no, not really. Um, a goad is that sharp and pointy stick right there, used for like driving cattle or oxen. You are trying to lead the cattle or oxen to go away, to either till your field or to shepherd them. 
and sometimes they're going to want to stray to the right, to the left, or they'll just stop in their tracks and even, like if they're really ornery, like kick back at you. And the sharp pointy stick is as a reminder of like, oh, guess who's in charge actually? And I'm going to lead you where you need to go. So Jesus says to Paul, dude, you are kicking against the goads. I am leading you a certain direction. And all you're doing right now as you persecute my church, as you ultimately are persecuting me, the God that you claim to love and to serve, this is doing harm to you. And you can't stop me. Like, I will accomplish what I'm going to accomplish. Resisting God's plan is futile. He will accomplish what he sets out to accomplish, but it only hurts us in the process when we resist his leading in our lives. So church, this morning, are there areas in our lives where you sense God's leading, God's direction, God's prodding, and yet we're resistant? Is there something you might be holding on to that God has been just poking at saying, I want you to let go of this and trust me. But there's so much fear. You haven't known a life or a reality where that hasn't been a part of your thought life or it's not something that you do. Is God leading you to apologize to your spouse or your friend from this little interaction that you had this past week where you were harsh? But you're holding on to, but I was right. Like, what I said was right. It was true. I just was a little mean about it. Is God leading you to slow your life down? To cut some things out? To make space for your faith to grow, but you have such a hard time saying no? Resistance to God and his leading only leads to more pain. He is lovingly directing you in the way he knows is good for you. So stop kicking against the goads. In verses 17 and 18, we see another difference in Paul's telling of his testimony this time. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I'm sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Jesus makes Paul's mission abundantly clear in some really contrasting statements here. But I think about this moment for Paul, like Jesus pretty much just said to Paul, hey, you have been viewing me as the villain right now. You've been viewing me as the enemy, the very God that you claim to love and to serve. Let me undo that. I'm not the enemy. Follow me, Jesus. Let me show you who the enemy actually is. Darkness, brokenness, sin. The father of lies, Satan, the adversary. That is the enemy. And I'm sending you out into the world with the very light that I just blinded you with, the light of life that will be residing in you now, Paul, as you go to those dark places and proclaim the good news about me. And I wonder, church, when we hear Jesus say to us as well, go make disciples of all nations, Do we think 
about our mission as actually coming up against brokenness, the evil one, the spiritual authorities. Like a lot of the time we're like, yep, I'm going out with this little light of mine. I'm going to let it shine. Yep, I'm going to go proclaim the goodness of God's kingdom, good things. We also need to remember who we're coming against. There is an enemy that wants to seek, kill, and destroy. He wants to rob every good thing that God has done, tarnish it, and get you to focus on anything and everything except from God. And any unbeliever that has not placed their trust in Jesus, they are still under the influence of darkness and the oppression of the enemy and his power. That is who we're sent to. What a seemingly hopeless place. And yet God says, I'm sending you, my people, my church, into that place. Paul, I'm sending you to be light in the darkness. Doesn't that change like when we gather as a church in thinking about what we're going back out to when we go to work? Like why this time together is so valuable? We need to not just simply like have a little good word of encouragement, but man, we need to armor up for what we're going back out to face. This is the mission and call of God's people to be light in the darkness, to come up against the enemy, the father of lies, and be, be armed with truth, to be armed with compassion for people who are blind. Jesus appears to Paul in a radiant light and it exposes the darkness of his soul only then to give him this light of life and send him to that same darkness to share that light with others who are walking in darkness. This is the life of a believer. Verse 19. So then King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and then to the Gentiles, I preach that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. That is why some Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me, but God has helped me to this very day, so I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Messiah would suffer, and as the first to rise from the dead would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. Paul says, I listened to Jesus. That's why I'm here today. I obeyed what he said. I did the things and that's gotten me here. He sent me to proclaim this good news and to call out to people in darkness to repent, to turn from sin and to turn to Jesus. Okay, I wanna use a little illustration that I saw in a sermon once that has been super helpful uh, at youth group different times, but I need some help. So Brandon, can you come up here really quick? Everybody give Brandon a hand. Brandon, I'm gonna have you stand here. Brandon did not know I was gonna do this. Don't worry, Brandon, you don't have to say anything or do anything, you're just representing Jesus. That's it. You're Jesus in this scenario, no pressure. Um, I'm not gonna have somebody represent like sin and death over here. That would be a bummer of a Sunday, an application you don't wanna take home with you. So 
repentance, okay? This is what repentance looks like, right? Before Christ, I should have gotten a mirror. That would have been helpful. Before Christ, our focus is self. The brokenness and sin and destruction of just me. Doing what I think is best in my own eyes. But the good news is God doesn't leave us there. He sends his son Jesus, what's up, dude, uh, to call out to us. We hear the voice of Jesus calling to us to follow him, just as he called to his first disciples. So what repentance looks like is to shift my focus from me, sin, death, brokenness, and to shift to look to Jesus, to follow him in his ways and what he says is good. It's the turn. That is repentance. Turn from my old focus. Jesus is my new focus. The problem is, oftentimes, here's what we like to do. Here's what I still struggle with doing often. I hear Jesus, I want to follow him, and I want to follow his ways, but this whole problem of sin and brokenness over here, it's just so big. Like, can I really turn my back on it? So what if I, like, try to follow Jesus while I keep my eye on this thing? He's back here somewhere. I'm going to find him. But my focus is still on my sin, on me, ultimately, I'm trying to manage this thing of sin. It's what we call sin management, where I'm not actually turning and trusting that Jesus has got me and got my sin and my brokenness, that he ultimately is the one that's gonna bring healing from that into restoration and new life following him. Everybody give Brandon a hand. Thanks. You did great, dude. It was hard. But we often do this. We don't actually make the whole turn and fix our gaze on Christ. We keep, we keep focusing on this thing. And if you're anything like me, sometimes I've been walking, following Jesus, and then all of a sudden I'm like, ooh, there was that thing back there I really need to deal with, Jesus. And I start, and my focus just goes to my sin again. And I heap on guilt, and I heap on shame. In story terms, repentance looks like turning from the narrative that I am the main character in my story the main character becomes Christ. And Paul says here, I preached repentance and encouraged them to demonstrate through their deeds the repentance they, they had shown. That faith and repentance, actions with your faith go hand in hand. That turning is something that happens first and foremost in your heart but then ultimately your actions line up with that repentance as well. John elaborates on this in 1 John chapter 2. I'm going to start, I think on the slide it starts in verse 6. I'm going to start at verse 8. Yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and in you because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light, and there's nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they're going because the darkness has blinded them. This act of repentance, our actions line up with it. So in John's example here, if I start following Jesus, attending a church, and I'm doing life on life with other believers, and then 
there's a brother or sister in Christ that does something to me that's painful. As broken people, we do this. That's even evil at times. Get stabbed in the back. And in that, I shift my focus again on like, what they did to me was wrong and I hate them. I want, I'm not just angry about it, I want bad to happen to them. Like that's what hate is. I, I want this killing of the soul to take place in their life. Jesus says, that can't happen. Repentance looks like your, your actions and your faith both coming into alignment with me. Otherwise, if your focus is simply on what's happened to you and how it was so awful and how they need to get what they deserve and your focus isn't on me, you're still walking in the dark. The shifting of our focus in terrible things like that of being hurt by a brother or sister in Christ, someone that you thought you should be able to trust, shifting our focus goes from just what they did to me to focusing on Jesus, his love for them, his love for his church, the forgiveness that he extended to us and then invites us to extend to others and to let that reshape how we move forward in a relationship with that person. In verse 22, Paul is addressing Agrippa, the king himself, as all the others are listening, and he says to him, I'm, I'm not saying anything beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen. Like, I'm not out of line here. Like, the Old Testament has pointed to this very moment with Jesus taking place. Verse 23. That the Messiah would suffer and is the first to rise from the dead would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. And just as a quick aside, this should be a reminder to us of the importance of the Old Testament. There's been trends throughout Christianity over the years of kind of this wanting to do away with the Old Testament because we're under the new covenant, covenant that takes place in the New Testament. And so let's just not touch that stuff in the Old Testament anymore. And man, that could just be so for, that could, there, nothing could be so for, far from the truth. We're in a series right now uh, at youth group called The Gospel According to Joseph. And so we're in Genesis, looking at the life of Joseph. And week after week, we're inviting the students to be detectives and to say, how does this part in Genesis, in Joseph's story, how does this point ahead to Jesus? And it's been so fun to see them just get into scripture and thinking about, oh, what about this thing? Does that point ahead to Jesus? And oh my gosh, they're doing three days again. Look at how this points to Jesus. Like the Old Testament, the prophets, Moses, all point to the main theme and purpose of scripture to show us God, to show us Christ, the true main character of the story. Everything is there for us to see him. Verse 24, at this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You're out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. I'm not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I am saying is true and reasonable. 
The king is familiar with these things and I can speak freely to him. I'm convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in the corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am except for these chains. The king rose and with him the governor and Bernice and those sitting with them. After they left the room, they began saying to one another, this man is not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment. Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. This moment where Paul is in front of King Agrippa, Bernice, Festus, his accusers, where in so many, he's just been called insane. He's just been called crazy. His character, integrity, his wisdom has come into question. He's utterly helpless in so many ways. Like the, the state of his life and well-being is hanging in the balance. It's in this moment when things seem so dark even just the company that's surrounding him, it's in this moment that Paul sees the opportunity to shine the light in the darkness. And I couldn't help but think about for me, for us, if we were in a similar situation, how would this go down for us? I've got parking tickets where I've gone before a judge and I'm getting, getting ready to plead my case and the second they say my name, I'm like, ah! And I just shrink back from everything I say. I'm like, yes, your honor. And like, I just leave and I didn't fight it at all. I got so scared. And yet here, in the presence of so much power or the illusion of power, Paul sees this as an opportunity to align his story with Christ's story, to be the light in the darkness to confront Agrippa with his own beliefs. I know you know the prophets, Agrippa. I know you believe them. It's kind of a trap too. Like if he says, no, I don't know. Everyone's like, oh, like you need to know the prophets, dude. Like he's setting this thing up, but he's confronting Agrippa's heart in this moment. The prophets all point to Jesus. Have you read Isaiah 53, Agrippa? About the suffering servant who has to die for the people. Agrippa's response to him is he totally sees through what Paul's trying to do. He's like, do you think in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? And church, if we could take one thing away from our time together this morning, would we adopt what Paul says next as we come into contact with people who have not trusted in Jesus? Short time or long, pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these Janes. With his life and credibility on the line, Paul's greatest concern, I long for you to believe and to see Jesus. And while his posture here is one that, that is beautiful, one that we should imitate, and oftentimes as we're in Acts, it centers so much around Paul, we raise him up to this pedestal of like, gosh, like he's super awesome. 
man, I don't think I could ever be like him. Paul is merely imitating the story that he has received from Jesus. In this moment, what we see Paul do, his heart here, his posture, is only because he learned it from Christ himself first. Jesus, who himself was beaten by the religious leaders and Pharisees of his time, who was falsely accused, who stood before Agrippa's grandfather, Herod Antipas, and he and Pilate and others could find no wrongdoing in him. And yet they still moved forward with killing him. As Jesus is hanging on the cross, his cry is, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Jesus is the one who says to the thief dying next to him, today you will be with me in paradise. That the cross itself, Jesus' final moment, is Jesus longing to bring light to the darkness. And if you're here and you haven't thought about the cross, like why we have this thing on the stage or why it's a part of like what what we're about as believers is that the cross shows us that as dark as things could possibly be, as hopeless and as awful as the world and life could be, it can't stop the power of our Savior, the one who is light in himself. And that when things are even darkest for him, he calls out to us to be forgiven, to join him in his kingdom forever. So if you're here and you have not trusted Jesus, Jesus is calling to you. You're facing this way. He's calling and saying, as dark as that picture seems, let me be the main character of your story. Luke is making it abundantly clear that Paul is walking in the same ways as Jesus. Jesus in Acts, is acting through his followers even though he's no longer physically with them. The story of Jesus continues because his body now is represented by believers here on earth. So the story continues, led by the Spirit through the power of his word through them, that just as Jesus came to the darkness and he himself, the passage that Brinton read to open it up, the darkness didn't understand him understand the light. It rejected the light. That story doesn't end when Jesus ascends to heaven. That story continues with his church that we are ones of light sent in the power of God's spirit to go to the darkness and expose it and to, fight, and to invite others to receive the light of Jesus, his life as well. Church, is this the story that we're living into as harvest in Camas, Washington? Bible studies are really good, but the aim of a Bible study is for us to get this. Our gathering on Sundays is good to dive into God's word, to be encouraged and whatever it might be that we're struggling with or wrestling through to remember who God is and how awesome he is. And it's so that we're sent out to broken people people who are walking in the dark. 1 John 2, verse 6. Whoever claims to live in him 
must live as Jesus did. His story has to become your story. Maybe you're like, Matt, that's in the NIV. So maybe whoever like wrote the NIV, that was just a little bit harsher take on this passage. Let's look at the ESV. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Maybe you're like, well, my thing though is the King James. I'm OG. I go back to when this first got translated to our language. Here we go. He that saith he abideth in him ought himself also to walk even as he walked. We just added some THs in there. That's it. And this should both be the hardest, most challenging thing that we've ever heard. The gut punch. God, you're calling me to walk like you? To live as you did? How the heck do I do that? And it should be the most exciting thing. Like this doesn't center around me and being a great Christian and like getting all this sorted out. No, I'm to walk and follow Christ and to ask him for help along the way. Show me how to be like you. In this specific situation with these people, God, what does it look like to show them your love, to come alongside them, to point them to you? How would you respond to that question they asked me? How would you treat my neighbor, Jesus? How would you interact in my workspace? Help me to be like you in that. This should excite us. This should be what it's all about. To follow Jesus is to be like him. All parts of our life continually being transformed by the power of his spirit at work in us to carry on the story of our Savior. But if you're anything like me, as excited as I can get about that, there are times where I just totally check out of Jesus' story. It's been popular recently in cinema to break the fourth wall. Uh, this, time, this moment where a character in whatever you're watching or reading addresses the audience or makes eye contact with the camera. They're stepping out of the story that they're currently in to acknowledge that there's another story out there taking place. And when this is done well, it's fun, it's funny. It like catches you off guard in a really good way, but when it's done poorly, it's disastrous in, the, in whatever you're watching or reading. It's awkward, it's jarring. Just watch She-Hulk on Disney+. Plus. Actually, don't, don't waste your time. And some of you are like, what the heck is a She-Hulk? Um, but it's unnatural and super unflattering and it just kind of ruins the story that you were just watching. I do that so often. I'm seeking to follow Jesus in his ways. And then I remember there's this other story out there that centers around me. And that story sounds pretty good right about now. Can you picture times where you find yourself asking, God, when's the last time I even talked to you? When's the last time I thought about you? Did I go through the whole day and just, you weren't in my thought life at all? Or is that just me that has those moments? Get to the end of the day and I'm praying with Bennett before he goes to bed and like, oh my gosh, God, am I talking to you to the first time 
on my son's behalf? Why didn't I think about you today? Does it happen around certain friends, family, the work environment, when you're on your phone, when you're disciplining your kids, when you go on vacation, when you're playing video games, when you're under stress? Something that has helped me recently to identify the times I jettison from Jesus's story uh, has been an old practice of Christians, the prayer of examine, first brought about by uh, St. Ignatius of Loyola. And how I heard it recently described is just at the end of your day, or for me, oftentimes, it's when I'm driving home from work, I just ask three questions with God as I pray. God, where did I feel close to you today? God, where did I feel far from you today? And then just one prayer request for the next day. And man, especially that second question, where did I feel far from you today, God? And thinking back on the day with the Lord, it's been pretty clear for me, like when I'm stressed or when I'm tired, God's the first thing that just like goes out the window. When shouldn't those be the times when I'm weak, as he says, that that's when he's able to be most powerfully perfect? So I encourage you to try that out. See, identify where are those times where I feel distant from you, God, in the day? And then where are the times where there's this closeness? Is it when I'm in your word or listening to worship or out in nature or with people from my community or, man, as I have breakfast with my kids? Agrippa ultimately finds no wrongdoing in Paul and probably could have ended the matter with the power that he had, but he ultimately defers to Paul requesting to see Caesar, passing the buck of responsibility along on again. So next week we will see Paul sent to the Roman emperor Caesar to plead his case as well. The people that hear Paul talking, they look at Paul's story and it makes no sense to them. They think he's crazy, they think he's insane, and yet they also see that he's innocent. If the world were to look at our lives, would there be moments in our stories where it looks like we're crazy, that we're out of our minds, that we're insane? Because Jesus' story has done something so drastic in transforming our own story that the world has no category for it. The band can come up now before we go into a time of communion. And I just want to offer a couple short prayers potentially during this time of communion, whether you do this on your own or you can, you can even do this in those spaces where you feel distant from the Lord. Uh, I think only one of them is on the screen, but here's a couple that might be good to bring before God. Jesus, overcome my temptation to disconnect from your story. Keep bringing all of my life into alignment with you. Jesus, help me to identify areas where I try to live apart from your story. Jesus, give me grace to turn my focus back on you. Jesus, let the beauty of your story saturate my life. And as we now go into a time of communion, we get to act out, reenact the story that we have received 